And from Panmunjom to Singapore to Pyongyang and now to Hanoi, the past year's quest for lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula continues as finally US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un are set to meet for their second summit, which, as we heard, will kick off today. Uh, they're going to meet before dinner and then continue with dinner. But perhaps the the real meat of that will come tomorrow. To celebrate what could be history in the making, we're joined by one of the most respected academics in the field of Korean modern history. Let's welcome Professor Bruce Cummings from the Department of History at the University of Chicago, whose most famous work includes the origins of the Korean War. Uh, And thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. So, I mean, I I find this quite intriguing. We have... Um, many people on the political left here in Korea with very high hopes for this summit. In the United States, though, on the political left, of course, because Trump's the one spearheading this, there is a a feeling of great scepticism, even negativity. Can you sum up for us your mood going into this summit? My own? Yeah, I mean... As an expert of of history, uh, particularly, do you think that this is a moment that we'll look back on in decades to come, or or will it be perhaps a a more disappointing feature? Well, it it is a a very important moment, and I more or less sympathize with the South Korean left than with the uh, liberals in the U.S. Uh, They have, uh, I mean, you're quite right, they don't want to give Trump any credit for the Singapore summit. Uh, and I'm sure uh, they'll find a way not to give him credit for uh, the one in Hanoi. I, I myself uh, oppose 99% of Trump's policies, but I think he's played a remarkable role in breaking through uh, you know, 70 years uh, logjam on the Korean Peninsula by not listening to the foreign policy establishment and just reaching out to uh, Kim Jong-un. So I give him a lot of credit for that. I don't know if he quite knows what he's doing, but he has really, um, you know, made a, a very big breakthrough. Yeah, we're going to be reflecting further later on the show with um, an ambassador under the Obama administration in, in Mark Lippert. Um, but looking, for example, at uh, some of the reports suggesting that the U.S. Senate Senator Schumer, for example, saying we'll have a significant role to play if President Trump decides to reduce sanctions as part of any deal with with North Korea. One one thing um, before we get into the meat of our own discussion, do you fear that whatever comes out of the summit, we kind of need a couple of days then to see what the reaction's like to to weigh the significance? Well, I I think the reaction is quite predictable you you hit the nail on your head uh, on the head yourself i i imagine that no matter what happens there will be uh, a lot of uh, condemnation of trump uh, in this country uh, i think south korea has a much different perspective uh, president moon has been instrumental in all of this diplomacy and south korea has a huge stake in north korea denuclearizing and not being the the terrible threat that it has been uh, so I, I think you can almost predict the reaction in advance. But uh, on the question of sanctions, uh, I think probably what's going to happen is not a lifting of sanctions in general, but uh, Trump agreeing to uh, lift uh, sanctions for South-North relations uh, to uh, attenuate the sanctions so that uh, 
the South and the North can pursue the many uh, economic uh, arrangements that they've already agreed to. Yeah, the, the presidential office here suggested the possibility of an end of war agreement between North Korea and the U.S. during during the summit. It's something that obviously Seoul had wanted very much last year. Do you, do you think there are grounds for that optimism? Yeah, I, I think uh, a lifting of the sanctions, as I just discussed, is is probably going to happen. Uh, a peace agreement, not not a treaty or anything, but something that gets us uh, three-quarters of the way toward a, a peace treaty ending the Korean War. I think that will probably happen. And if if that happens, then it's uh, entirely logical that the U.S. would agree to uh, liaison offices in Pyongyang and Washington, because if you're making an, uh, an agreement to end the Korean War that, in effect, recognizes your adversary as uh, your diplomatic partner. So I, I think those three things, uh, lesson sanctions, the end of the Korean War and, and uh, liaison offices are, are quite predictable to come out of this uh, uh, this uh, meeting. There is scope for surprises. Last time in Singapore, for example, President Trump just unilaterally announced uh, not only a suspension of military drills, but also his own desire to bring troops back home from the Korean Peninsula, which seems to be out of sync with the U.S. political mood, even actually more extreme than some of the South Korean political mood. Do we um, anticipate that if there is anything like a peace agreement, that would speed up something like scaling down troops and military involvement here? Well, I mean, people in South Korea are much better informed uh, about the ramifications of all this than Americans are. Uh, It's quite common uh, for pundits in this country to say that if we have a peace agreement, then the next thing Kim Jong-un will want is for American troops to go home. That's completely wrong. Uh, He himself has said it's wrong, but his father back in the 90s said that uh, as part of the reconciliation and ultimately reunification of Korea, uh, North Korea would, would... be willing to uh, countenance American troops in the South as long as they stay in the South, because Korea is surrounded by big powers. That's uh, well known to people who studied the issue. Uh, it never gets into the press here. Uh, instead, uh, you know, people just uh, go on railing on about how you know, Kim Jong Kim Jong Un's uh, great goal is to get American troops out of Korea. What about the the suspicion, though, that North Korea does sometimes move the goalposts? And we saw, for example, late last year, this statement out of North Korea's media for what it's worth. Uh, But it comes back to my mind every now and then when when they were kind of suggesting denuclearization might also include uh, the U.S. nuclear umbrella in this region. Well, denuclearization on both sides uh, is impossible uh, in an ultimate sense in that North Korea, uh, after, let's assume they gave up every last uh, ounce of plutonium and their atomic bombs and their missiles, they would still have uh, thousands of specialists, scientists, uh, nuclear physicists. What do you do with them? I actually saw somebody who, who recommended that they be sent out of North Korea uh, to an island or something like that. and that, That's the level of absurdity. And in the case of the U.S., uh, if it no longer has nuclear weapons near Korea uh, or in Korea, which it, it had hundreds of them from 1958 to 1991. Even so, it can lift a, a B-1 bomber uh, from the Midwest and drop nuclear weapons on North Korea uh, and turn around without landing. Uh, plus, we have nuclear submarines like uh, you know that can uh, 
uh, like the Trident that can just devastate North Korea overnight. So there can't be any ultimate denuclearization, but there can be agreements that leave ambiguity on both sides, because there has to be ambiguity. The U.S. is never going to say that they would not use nuclear weapons under any circumstance on the Korean Peninsula, and I think North Korea uh, wants to at least retain ambiguity about whether it uh, harbors nuclear weapons or not. And, and it kind of draws on what you were saying before about the critics in, in the U.S. who will pick holes, whatever happens out of this this summit. Uh, because of the standard that that Trump is being held to, we're never, ever going to have certainty. I mean, it's, it's unrealistic to expect any kind of agreement, even if it was laid out in uh, detailed points over 100 pages. There's never going to be an agreement that guarantees our future, right? I mean, we are going to be dealing with a level of uncertainty that if next week someone does something either unexpected or in the wrong direction, things could go back to square one. They could, and... and I mean, the fact is that uh, the manufacture of nuclear weapons begins in the minds of nuclear physicists, and North Korea learned how to do that. Uh, but I do think that that very fact gives North Korea much more security than they had in the past before they developed nuclear weapons, because they, they may give up uh, a whole lot of stuff to have better relations with the U.S., but they can retain uh, an amb- ambiguous situation. I mean, they have so many thousands of underground facilities no one's ever going to plumb all of them. Uh, but that's, in a way, okay, because it, it gives them the kind of security they need. They've got the big one, uh, and no matter what happens, they, they have it. And so they can then feel much more confident in reaching out uh, to the world, particularly uh, the world economy with economic relations. And on the, in the case of the U.S., I mean, everybody knows the U.S. can paste North Korea anytime it wants, as, as I said a, a minute ago. So... As long as people uh, recognize uh, uh, an inherent and ir- ineradicable ambiguity in this, you can get a lot of denuclearization done. Trump said yesterday, as long as they don't test, I'm happy. And people, of course, derided that instantly. But the fact is, North Korea tested uh, its missile in November 2017, 8,000-mile uh, long-range missile ICBM. But they haven't tested uh, one with a warhead on it. Uh, they haven't proved that they can marry a nuclear warhead to a long-range missile. And by stopping at that point, uh, it's actually quite brilliant, because the U.S. doesn't want them to test anymore uh, so that they don't get that particular capability. Uh, and in, that, in a sense, North Korea's diplomacy uh, on this has been quite uh, smart. They, they do have a few cards, don't they, uh, up their sleeve as well. Uh, just just a final question for you. Chairman Kim's choice of transport by, by train, he didn't have an Air Force One to fly aboard. And then when he sees all this uh, progress in Vietnam since its Doi Moi model, uh, something we've been reflecting on the last few days, do you think that could be a, a factor? Uh, or, because I, I, I just feel like that analysis is a little naive because he'll be aware from any distance that there are a lot of developed countries around North Korea. Well, of course. I mean, they have an embassy there. Uh, I first visited Vietnam in 1996, and uh, right next door to my hotel was a great big Daewoo, uh, South Korean uh, skyscraper hotel. Uh, The problem with Vietnam for North Korea is that South Korea quite uh, 
smartly moved in very quickly after the Doi Moi reforms and established a real beachhead that has been uh, extremely valuable in terms of trade uh, and investment. So that's North Korea's problem. Uh, I don't know why he takes the armored train, uh, but it's probably because his father and his grandfather did too. I mean, you may remember that Kim Jong-il went to meet Putin in Moscow and traveled all the way across the Trans-Siberian Railway in his armored train. So, I mean, if there's one country in the world that likes to do things uh, uh, its own way, and because that's the way they've done them in the past, it's North Korea. Professor Cummings, always a pleasure to hear from you. Uh, we're going to get uh, a continued U.S. perspective. Thank you to you, uh, Bruce Cummings, but uh, Mark Lippert, former ambassador to South Korea, going to be with us in the next half hour.